Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Welcome to part two of our dialogue with Greg Thomas, a leading cultural analyst, integral thinker, musician, and educator. In part two, Greg analyzes the ways in which we can reorient our culture and ourselves towards self-actualization and towards developing capacities such as mastery and wisdom and harmonizing together to create a healthier, more mature community. Welcome to Deep Transformation, self society spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Well, you're alluding to antagonistic cooperation, which is one of the four principles that we discuss in the Jazz Leadership Project, one of the four principles derived from jazz music. It actually is based and grounded in the hero's journey. So those familiar with Joseph Campbell's work, it's it's really grounded in the hero's journey so that the, the hero, the protagonist of the story, is going to face certain challenges and conflicts in the course of that journey and that adventure. So your procedural knowledge and skills are gonna come into play. Your propositional knowledge, your ability to make sure you say the right things, that's important, but your ability to be more perspectival and participatory, and I'm, I'm trying to relate these different parts of the, of the dialogue and the conversation, is really important. But the antagonistic cooperation is how do you face challenges, competition? And you do it through certain traditions. Now you mentioned in, in jazz, there's a tradition called the cutting contest, where a lot of times after they would play on some concert stage, great musicians would get together in a smaller club and go head to head. This is true also in the hip hop tradition. So it's a part of a, a cultural lineage where, and now check this out. Albert Murray says that this comes from being in a free enterprise system of competition. So again, he relates it back to the American experience. Yeah. Okay. So you're competing, but you're also cooperating. So it's competitive cooperation. And this is a part of our democratic experience in the United States. Why? Because we have what? An adversarial legal system. You have a pluralistic society where different groups are vying for resources and you vie for those resources and you debate and you say, well, here's why I shouldn't. And that is the way it goes. So it shows up in the art forms of jazz as the cutting contest and in hip hop, is called a cipher, C-Y-P-H-E-R, where they get together in a circle 
and they start the beats and they have that going. And one after the other, they freestyle. They improvise their lyrics on the spot in a competitive way, but it's an advance from outright violence. So you may be dissing and ranking on the person you're talking to, but they're grooving with you as they as they do it. So they're like, they're, they're listening. They're with you. And they're like, hmm. And then they see if they can outdo each other. So then the other person gets their turn. And then they see, and it keeps on going like that. Now, culturally, this is grounded. And there's a book by Sterling Stuckey called Slave Culture, where he talks about the ring shout tradition in Black American culture, where you would have these folks ritualized and dressed in white, and they would go together in a circle. And one at a time, they would go, one would go to the middle of the circle and dance and do their own individual steps. So you have the group and the individuality there at the same time. That shows up in jazz where you have the group ensemble dynamic and each person taking their own solo, expressing what they have to say on the melody, the chords, the theme, the mood, putting what Murray called their statement on the epidermis of actuality. And what's the epidermis of actuality? What's the actuality that Murray talks about? Entropy. Entropy. We, you know, entropy is a reality that we have to deal with as human beings on this earth. Things, you know, are, uh, things are going to go into more of a state of disorder, randomness. And what do we want to do? We want to have consciousness and culture so that we can try to better order things. But ultimately, and this is the tragic dimension, death is coming. We're all going to die. That's the tragic dimension. But there's also the comic dimension. There's also fun and play and affirmation of life, not just looking at it from like this postmodern progressive perspective. In, in critique of modernity and what modernity hasn't achieved while not acknowledging the dignities of modernity. No, we, we have to see. So, so I'm saying that in these art form, I just gave you a little taste, just a little taste of the ritual and cultural complex and dynamics that these meanings and values manifest in these art forms. And, that, and, and, and it's much deeper than that. I just gave you a little taste. That's why for me, it's about culture, Institute for Cultural Evolution. Culture is the thing. That is my key concept. I've looked at it from every which way, from anthropological, from an integral perspective. I've looked at it culture in business. I, I mean, I've tried to do like a 360 on culture. That's why that's my key concept and why I keep talking about the power of culture. Yeah. And that competition pushes the individuals towards excellence. There we they go. Reach, they reach levels that otherwise alone they wouldn't have done. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. That's beautiful. And that's why sports, you know, people use sports analogy. I mean, that's why, why, why are sports so popular? One way of looking at why sports are so popular is because you have adults playing children's games 
at the highest levels. So you, you play baseball, softball, football, basketball, and other sports. But when you see those who do those things at the highest levels, you're like, oh my God, look at the excellence. Look at the, look at the, the beauty and excellence at display through play. Okay. So yes, the excellence is key. And that's why for, for another project I'm involved in the Omni American future project and Omni American is the title of Murray's Albert Murray's first book. I have a project that I'm the co-director of JLP is one partner. Another partner is the American Sephardi Federation. Another partner partner is the combat anti-Semitism movement. And what we are basing our work on is fighting against illiberalism and bigotry through cultural excellence, through moral excellence, spiritual excellence. That's what we have to strive for. We got to keep the standards high and we have to go for it. You know, so so I'm just explaining, trying to connect the different things that I'm actually doing in the world with the ideas that undergird them, which for me then becomes a synthesis and a motivator. And I frankly is my is my dharma. I mean, I'm almost 60 now and I'm very clear on who I am and what my dharma is this incarnation. So I really appreciate you all giving me a chance to to go even deeper than I usually have a chance to go because you cats are so deep and your guests are so deep. So I'm like, Oh, I can go there. I can go there. And I thank you. Yeah. And thank you. What a gift. Boy, there's so much (laughs) what you said, but I'm inspired by your, by your riff on, on excellence. And it's the way it, it inspires and calls forth the best in in all of us, uh, optimally anyway. I remember Ramdas saying once that uh, mastery in any realm is fascinating, and it is. But you're pointing to more than the fact that it's, it's fascinating. You're pointing to the fact that uh, the Greek Greek term was arete, virtue, and but it meant a kind of excellence, and and it was the ideal of Greek culture in many ways, and. And you're pointing to this, bringing this back. Virtue's become a kind of almost a little, I don't know, old-fashioned word, but it really feels appropriate here. Virtue, excellence, and that the pursuit of excellence, self-actualization, merging into self-transcendence, etc. These are some of the most fulfilling motives for a human being, and maybe part of what we want to be doing as a culture is orienting the culture towards self-actualization. I agree, Roger. Arate. What a great concept. How do you get to arate? Well, one of the ways is through techne, through your technique, okay? And the way you go about becoming the best you can be. You know, when we talk about these developmental models, These are not new. Developmental models are not new. But in a flattening, more postmodern perspective where these differentiations and what what does Ken call them? That the positive hierarchies as opposed to, how does he put it? You know, you have- Hierarchies as, as opposed to growth hierarchies. Thank you. Exactly. You know, you mentioned about mastery. And that's one of the fundamental- 
aspirational concepts that we mentioned sports, we mentioned the arts. That's what we're striving for. So you, you have a developmental model from the Middle Ages where you have apprentices. And the apprentice is, is an understudy and student of master craftsmen. So as you develop from apprentice, a beginner, to a journeyman, more intermediate level of skill and application to a master craftsman, where a master craftsman is able to, it's like the, the excellence and the mastery is second nature. So they're able to flow. But it's like when you're learning to ride a bike, you're thinking about this and that. But after, when you when you learn it, you just do it. Well, master craftsmen, masters do that at the highest levels, okay? So that's what we should be striving for in each line of development, in each dimension of our lives. That's easier said than done, <laughs> you know? But yes, I, and, and that's why it's important to really just strive to be and do our best, to integrate our the way we see the world what we think about, our feelings towards things, and then our actions in the world. This is the kind of integration that I think is important for us to strive for as individuals. And the more we have ourselves together individually, the better our relationships are going to be from our marriages to our friendships. And of course, when you talk about the Greeks, they had different words, you know, for these different types of relationships and different types of love. But yes, the mastery dimension is so crucial. We, we have to strive for it and acknowledge it when it's there. And then, you know, I mean, I, I see a book there by, by Robert Greene on, on, on mastery. He wrote on different topics. I mean, I've studied all these things very deeply. And yeah. it, these are models there for a reason. Uh, you know, what what did John Vivekey likes to quote from the from the time of Plato and Socrates, you know, as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. So the word sage was used earlier, and that's what we need more of. We need masters in the various domains of human activity, and we need sages. Ultimately, we're going to have to have some wisdom we're going to, I mean, one of the things that Duke Ellington said, he says, you know, you want to strive to be in the right place at the right time, doing the right things with the right people. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, that's kind of a way of looking at being in flow or, or, or conception of success, but wisdom, and there's many ways of looking at wisdom, but wisdom would be more an application of that doing the right things in the right way, at the right time, for the right reasons, right? With masterful skill. Because, I mean, there are situations, you I mean, the legal system in, in this country, you know, you have certain principles. And this is why when you mentioned virtues, Roger, I thought about Steve McIntosh's work, because in developmental politics, in that last section, he focuses on a reinvigoration of virtues and 
how you have you have tensions between these different virtues. So take liberty and equality. There's a tension between liberty and equality, and these are unresolvable tensions, okay? But wisdom will allow us to decide when you have more of what unresolvable tensions between these principles or these qualities. And that's what we need more of. It ain't easy. <laughs> you know, and, and there's also technical mastery. And then there's that step beyond that. And I, I have this quote by Jimi Hendrix on my music stand over. He says, technically, I'm not a guitar player. All I play is truth and emotion. Uh, which yeah, he, he practiced did. his ass off his whole life. But he, he, was, he, but he did it by being a master of the blues also. And it changed the world. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> the same after Jimmy. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it kicks into this 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 higher power, this mystery that we we strive to approach. And why do you keep playing music? It's hard. They don't pay anything. Blah 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 blah. Because of 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 the magic, because of the spirit, because of the the fulfillment of self. I I'm recording an album right now. I went in the studio a couple of days ago, and I was feeling really depressed. Okay, I struggle with depression. I read too much. Or, anyway, I don't know what it is, but I've always, it's been a gift since I've been a young adult. Anyway, I wouldn't feel good about my music. I wouldn't feel good, you know, my life, everything. Depression, it's like you don't even need a reason to be depressed. You're just depressed. We got in there and I had the guys that I've been playing with. And when we got, we recorded two songs and we got to a second song. I just blew up. I mean, I felt like I've been touched by the finger of God or something and and driving home. It was just, I was so grateful to everybody for participating in that experience. And it was like all that pain and all that sorrow and all that heaviness was just like, it was gone. You know, beautiful. that's you see what I'm sorry, please finish. No, no, just a moment of, uh, of I don't know how to word it, but deep grace. It seems like, yeah, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. I'm going to give you an anecdote from the jazz world and then connect it to some of the blues idiom perspectives that I'm immersed in and I'm a lineage holder of. You have two great jazz alto saxophonists, Art Pepper and Sonny Stitt. Art Pepper, West Coast, racialized as white. Sonny Stitt, racialized as black. He's a black American who is in the Charlie Parker tradition. Charlie Parker is one of the greatest and the probably top three greatest improvisers in American history in terms of jazz improvisation. If there's a Mount Rushmore of jazz improvisation, mm -hmm. you're going to have Louis Armstrong there. You're going to have Charlie Parker there. Okay. Sonny Stitt comes out of that. And Sonny Stitt is one of the most incredible technicians on saxophone i mean you listen to what he's able to play oh my god so there's a jam session a cutting contest that we talked about antagonistic cooperation art pepper was going through all kinds of crap in his life maybe his i don't know breaking up with his wife he was a substance abuser i mean it's just everything was falling apart but he's on stage with one of the most technically proficient alto saxophonists in the history of jazz. And they're playing Cherokee, which is a song that is a testing ground, okay? 
Ever since Charlie Parker in 1945 did a version of Cherokee called Coco, 320 on the metronome, blisteringly fast and ran through the changes like it was nothing. Just, it was like a bomb was dropped in the musical world when that record came out. It was like, oh my God, Sonny Stitt is playing like that. So Sonny Stitt takes the first solo and he's burning, he's blistering. And Art Pepper is there. And he says that when it was his turn to play, he played way beyond himself. He went to a place and just let everything go and put everything into that solo. And after he finished, Sonny Stitt looked at him and gave him a good head nod, like, okay, good job. You got it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the power of music to heal, the power of music to help us transcend the everyday woes of, of life, at least temporarily. When we talk about Albert Murray as a blues philosopher, Albert Murray said that stomping the, when you're talking about stomping the blues, you're talking about a communal dynamic where you have the Saturday night function. The Saturday night function was after a hard week of work and labor. Black folks used to get together and they would, they would stomp the blues. They would get together. And he says, you know, from a ritual perspective, you start off with a banishing of the evil spirits. Okay. So first you, you're saying, get away from me. You know, he would use the expression, we need to unask the place, you know, <laughs> that's the first step. But then that becomes a fertility ritual. You go from banishing this evil spirits, the depression, the blues as such, and then through romance and that dynamic, you help continue the species through a fertility ritual. So Murray put that tradition within a ritual anthropological context in his book, Stomping the Blues. But what do you have on Sunday mornings? You got the Sunday morning church service. So you've got the secular and the sacred in that dynamic. But the music is central to both. When you talk about the blues idiom, it's not just a secular dynamic. I look at a continuum. On one side, you got the sacred with the spirituals and gospel, and on the other side, you got blues and other more secular forms. But they create, they together create an entire musical, I guess, ecosystem, you can call it, where you got all of those dimensions together, you know, but the music is central and the music is spiritual and the music allows us to connect to our emotional centers. One of the things that is, uh, when you talk about the power of the arts and the power of music in particular, is that they call music the invisible art. But music, of course, is based on vibration and sound. And that's tapping into our emotional centers. So music um, reminds us of our range of human feelings, right? And so 
we're able to many times, and Ellison said that music gives resonance to memory. So when you hear certain music, it takes you back to certain things. So you're, John, you're talking about not just listening, you're talking about playing the music and allowing the music to do its work of beauty and power and healing in that moment for you, man. And that's so beautiful. And that's one of the higher functions of music, you know? And that's one of the reasons why music is totally universal in human culture. That makes it all worthwhile. The sucking in the beginning and then working through and sore fingers and hours and hours and hours. And what am I doing? I could be doing anything else. And you have those moments. And there it is. Those moments of transcendence, mm -hmm. you know? You know, we have to include the tragedy, but hey, let's try to at least momentarily. So you know what you know what Murray would say? He would say, look, let's be real. You can stomp the blues, but they're coming back in the morning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's temporary. Now I'm going to connect it, since we're talking about music, I'm going to connect it to Christopher Smalls, a UK music critic who covered classical music for decades and then got into Afro-American music. And when he talks about music of the common tongue, you know what he says? Christopher Small says that in Afro-American music, that there are these moments of transcendence and moments of utopia that allows you to transcend the everyday cares in that moment. That's the function of utopia. Utopia is not something we strive for on a large scale because that's not going to happen. And we know that when utopias have been tried to be created, it usually turns disastrously. Yep. But there's still a role of utopia, momentary utopias. When you're with your children and that love is there, when you're with your loved one, when you're playing music, you're listening to it, when you're having certain experiences together that are momentary moments of utopia and transformation and, and, and transcendence, that's the role to remind us that, look, we have the ability to affirm life and be joyous even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of 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 sadness and the blues we still can appreciate and affirm life itself because we got the gift of life we've got the gift of a breath you woke up this morning that's something to acknowledge and appreciate you know so this all connects to music to spirituality to ritual you know all, it's all of these various aspects and i haven't had the opportunity often to riff on and improvise on all these different subjects and bring it together. But you all are giving me this opportunity and I just so appreciate it. Thank you. And, and it also helps us to live those moments of utopia. And I know I'm not done with my struggles with depression. Just God gifted me with that one. It also helps you die, you know, in, in, in a mysterious way. It prepares you to, to live and every song ends. You know, every session ends there, and there's a climatic things in, in, in some way. I think that's preparation for death also. Mm, mm, yeah, I would say so. I, I would say so. Roger, you've been quiet for a while. 
Well, I'm I'm taking in Greg. You know, I'm 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 not musically gifted in any way. I'm actually I'm aesthetically challenged. I'm colorblind. I have almost no sense of smell, and I I can't hold a tune. So, you know, I'm practically without knowledge of the outside world. It's no wonder I'd like to meditate. You know, it's, <laughs> so 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 this is for me is is a wonderfully rich delving into a perspective which I don't have an innate gift for, but I have an appreciation of, and I'm delighting in the joy and life and vivacity that I feel coming through you both as you as you explore this passion. And it's giving me a sense of how healing this can be, how deeply healing. And I hadn't thought of it as preparation for death, but of course, there's a whole field of musical thanatology. So, so yeah. So it's for me, it's illuminating and opening in a in a valuable way. Absolutely, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that because I think too often in our scientifically driven, you know, from the from modernity and the power and role of science and technology, and now you're talking about AI. Good lord, these things, the role of creativity in the creative process. And the role of the arts and humanities is so fundamentally crucial to our human existence and to us being able to get beyond this meaning and and meta crisis, or at least get through it successfully. It's, it's it's, It's so fundamental because, you know, you mentioned that virtue is, you know, kind of poo pooed, but I love how Steve reinvigorated it in developmental politics. I love I how do John, too. I do too. I'm a yeah. big fan of Steve. I really love it. Yeah. I love how John Verveke in his work, 50 part awakening from the meaning crisis. And now the after Socrates series that he's doing right now is taking another look at these ancient philosophers and the Neoplatonic tradition and saying that there, this life there, and that's, you know, there's a book that I'm sure that you all will be familiar with, and I don't have to find that. I just need to name it. It's, it's really important. Uh, and I, I got to get the name first. Kars, James Kars, Finite and Infinite Games. That's a really important book because one of the things that he talks about, you know, a finite game being that which there's, you know, is winners and losers and you play to win. But the infinite game, the game of life is to continue playing the game. And in that work, James Cars talks about how culture, and again, culture, culture is not something that is the same thing as society and the social. If you have cultural forms and you have cultural ideas, those ideas and forms can be picked up at any time by any people and reinvigorated. That's what happened during the the Renaissance, right? You have a a re-evaluation and a looking back at those ancient texts and ancient forms. And doing new things with it. So this is this is why the wisdom, the, the wisdom tradition, the perennial wisdom, 
that we can acknowledge, embrace, along with our scientific knowledge, and be able to make certain distinctions and say well where they missed the boat, okay? But I, it is so important to acknowledge the wisdom that have come, that has come through our human civilizations, and to then be able to pick up certain things and say, you know something, that's useful now. I'm going through rereading the Platonic dialogues of Socrates. I'm doing that right now. And there's such rich, oh my God, you read those dialogues and it's like you're right there as Socrates is in conversation with this one and that one, you're there. So that may have been thousands of years ago, but the wisdom from that is something that we can embrace now. And that's what John Verveke is actually doing. And, and you find that this is happening in different corners, you know, and, and I, I, I think it's a real good thing. And I think that, and again, this is my hopefulness coming through. This is my tragic optimist coming through. I think if there's enough of us who will work on ourselves and work with other people to inculcate ideas, perspectives, practices that where we can exemplify for others how we can work together despite our differences and despite our disagreements, that we can model what it takes for us to be in flow together enough to tap into higher dimensions of human possibility. And Greg, I just I just have to say this. I, I think we need to acknowledge the influence of African-American preachers from the pulpit mm. and what they would get going. And the way you were talking just now, you get into this rhythmic flow and you're not thinking about your next thought. It's just coming through you. And I feel that. And I went to a, a service many, many, many years ago, a little East Texas church. And I, ne I, I remember that sermon. This guy was up there and it was about God's number. And it says, if it's not God's number, if it's God's number, it doesn't matter what the numbers are. And he just started going. And there's untuned piano and this little black girl was pounding out these chords. And, and the, the, every we're getting into, I was the only white guy there or person there. And they just, it was, they were so loving and kind to me. I just wandered off the street and I felt so caught up and embraced that. And I think as well as the music that came over on the ships, the slave ships, when African-Americans and those really horrible situations got a hold of the English language. They did things to English that hadn't been done before, you know, that is equally, you know, where the blues come and where rock comes from and where inspired speech, uh, Obama, when he would get into his zone, he would, he would get into that zone. He would just start, you know, this rhythmic, almost incantation of truth. It's way back there in the roots of, of the blues and, and what we've been talking about. Absolutely. And you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King earlier, and I think I might have not responded to your question about Dr. King. Dr. King is one of the greatest exemplars of that tradition, a, a tradition not only of rhetorical greatness, but a depth of study. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a depth of religious theological and philosophical study that then was channeled through his particular genius, grounded in that Black American church 
Christian church and Protestant tradition that you're talking about. All of that came together in Dr. King. I think, you know, there's there's what I call a blues idiom wisdom tradition that for me starts with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Yeah. And then it goes through and there are various figures. I, I, I put Ellison and Murray at the center and I put a bunch of different musicians there. But Dr. King is a powerful representation of that blues idiom wisdom tradition. He in 1964 wrote about blues and jazz and the power and the function of it in a way with such deep insight. So he he was able to, and he passed away at 39. 39. It's just incredible what in, in that period during the civil rights movement, what he was able to achieve and the impact he was able to have on this country. But his he's a great representation for me of the blues idiom wisdom tradition. Yeah, so, one of my my biggest heroes. You know, I put him in the top three American men. You know, I probably had to go Washington, Lincoln. You might throw Benjamin Franklin in there, but definitely Dr. King, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Of the 20th century, one of the greatest Americans, 19th century Frederick Douglass, it was Lincoln and some of Lincoln's contemporaries who said, you know, Frederick Douglass was probably the greatest American. I mean, because you, you, when you look at what Frederick Douglass, from being enslaved to being one of the greatest orators of the 19th century, and again, he studied those classical texts. He studied, you know, and read the speeches of, you know, great orators in the past and that type of thing. And he's able to assimilate that, that knowledge. And then, you know, through his own speechifying and the power and impact of that was able to change the course of, of, of American history you know, um, by calling to account America with its vaunted principles, showing where you you are not living up to it, but still, and this is powerful, but still honoring the value of the nation's founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Ellison called these our sacred documents. And through, and I mentioned E Pluribus Unum out of many one and the spiritual implications of that, we in this country have an opportunity to, by striving for the realization of democratic ideals in a quote unquote multiracial democracy, it's never been done anywhere at any time. Why do you think we have such difficulty? We have all of these different groups of people who are gathered together, not based on monarchy, kingship, that are based together on a set of ideas that inspirited a nation. And we're striving to achieve that. And we violate it every day. But striving to achieve it is what we need to do. And the level of consciousness and culture that we're talking about, the multi-perspectival, the feeling tones of music is not just intellectual. It's also mm. the feeling dimension. It's got to be head, heart, and gut. We got three brains. You know, it's got to be all of those things together. And through that, we might have a shot. We might have a shot. And one way to do it is to try our best to be in group flow 
and swing together the best we can. You know, and and you mentioned early, early on, one of the first things you said, and it really stuck with me, is that you judge a person, the content of their character, getting back to Dr. King. Well, you don't judge them where they started out. You judge them where they ended up, you know, and you see that time and time again in our historical figures in our country, you know, keep it there, that, I mean, Abraham Lincoln really got, it was about slavery. I mean, it came very clear to him. He never liked it, but he was willing to compromise on that at a certain point. He goes, oh my God, no, and we're, we're, we're paying the price for this horrible sin. I mean, he got it. Benjamin Franklin had three slaves when he was young. He went to England. I think one or two of them ran away. He went, they must not like this. And so the last years of his life, he, he spent uh, trying to abolish slavery. You know, that's so right. You Absolutely. Where you end up. And the thing is, you know, they talk about the, the, the founding fathers and their contradictions. Yes, there was a fundamental contradiction between being slave owners and basing your system on the concept of freedom and liberty and equality when inequality and lack of liberty was there for a, a bunch of. So that's true. But as Danielle Allen points out, and I would urge you all when it comes out in April to check out her book, Justice by Means of Democracy. This is going to be a path-breaking work on American political philosophy that I urge you to check out. But she she talks about how we, we you know, we, we can dog out Jefferson, but what about John Adams? John Adams never owned slaves. And John Adams contributed, as did others, to the creation and writing of the Declaration of Independence. So whenever you have these instances of hypocrisy, violation of principles, you also have people and movements to counteract that at the same time. That's why when you have a broader perspective, you don't just talk about the ills and the hypocrisy and the sins. What about those who actually fought against it? What about yeah. the Underground Railroad? Yeah. What about the abolitionist movement? What about the hundreds of thousands that white men died in the war to free slaves? That's that's pretty yeah. good. And to free themselves. Because if you are a slave society, ultimately, psychologically, you're spiritually, not really, yeah. and spiritually, you're not free. You're looking over your shoulder. When are they going to rise up and kind of come against me? So when we're talking about freedom, it's not just for those Negro Americans and those formerly enslaved. It's to psychologically and spiritually free all Americans, including those who were the enslavers. Yeah. Amen. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Greg, as I'm we're probably coming towards our end and I'm just looking over what you've, the perspectives you've offered. And just, what I really appreciate is the multidimensionality and many perspectives you've brought to this, this conversation and these topics. And you've advocated, recognized the importance of, of, of embodying and developing multiple aspects of ourselves. Yes. And you've you've emphasized the importance of of excellence of many kinds, and that the call to excellence is a is a central imperative and call for each of us, and that this may be essential 
not only for our own well-being, but for our civilization's survival. Yes. And you've spoken with such passion and informed passion, very different thing, informed passion about so many of the great issues of our time. And I just am I'm deeply touched and inspired and uh, just it's it's truly been a gift. And I, I just want to thank you so much. And it's and it's also been a gift to see the two of you playing around uh, your love and passion of music. And I want to invite you back because we barely got rolling here. I have so many other things that I wanted to bounce off you that came up for me in studying your work and getting to know you. So also, I'm working on this album. Uh, as soon as I kind of clean it up, we have the basic tracks, but I'll send you some of the stuff I'm Please. doing. And one entrance, it's just B.B. King. You know, that simple, incredible genius he was. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't more technical, but he just transmitted. And 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 I have a little thing that, that actually approached that, or I felt him coming through me. Let's put it that way. That's probably All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I appreciate this opportunity to share with you all and with your audience. I would be happy to come back. I, I would be honored for that opportunity. Thank you so much. God bless you, brother. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.